On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I get the chance to talk to Dr. Craig Carter. You know, we had that original episode uh, however many weeks ago on Christian Platonism and Craig Carter caught his his attention and he offered to come on the show. So we were able to interview him on his book, Interpreting Scripture in the Great Tradition, as well as talking about Christian Platonism. Is that a legitimate label to be used or not? And of course, we talk uh, more about just metaphysics in general, what that is, why Christians should care about it. I think you're really going to enjoy the episode and learn a lot from Dr. Carter, as I know we did. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where uh, we like to encourage uh, our listeners to think deeply and clearly about issues, uh, particularly theological issues with a little bit of philosophical flair at times uh, from a Baptist perspective. And today we have the uh, very much honor to talk with Dr. Craig Carter um, about the history of metaphysics a little bit when it comes to Christian theism and what that looks like for Christians today and what they should think about that. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm alongside uh, my co-host, uh, Brandon Askew, who is with me. Um, before we do get started, we do want to give Dr. Carter a chance to introduce himself uh, so that those who are unfamiliar with him might have a little bit of context for who he is and why he matters on this discussion. Uh, and for those who do know him, I guess maybe something interesting about it. So I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, uh, thanks, Jordan. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be uh, on your uh, podcast. And um, uh, I'm on Twitter now for the first time and uh, just a month. And uh, so I noticed that um, that uh, your, 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 your podcast was there and somehow I got connected to it through Twitter and uh, heard that you were talking about my book. And so uh, I just want to uh, encourage that. And, and uh, I'm very honored to have you talking about it. And uh, I thought that it would be good for us to, uh, to chat further about Christian Platonism and metaphysics and so on. Um, as far as myself, I have been a Baptist all my life. I'm a professor here at uh, Tyndale University College and Seminary in Toronto. Uh, I um, was a pastor for seven years full time, uh, but I am uh, for the last 10, 11 years, I've been a theologian in residence, which means a, a part time staff member at our church. We have about um, three full time and uh, no, four full time and three part time on the pastoral staff. And I preach five times, six times a year. I teach a Sunday school class, uh, about 100 adults every Sunday morning. Um, I went through Isaiah, for example, for three and a half years with that class. So it was a wonderful experience. Um, I also teach a group of men in the church. Uh, um, we started out with a course on hermeneutics, and for the last two and a half years, we've worked our way through the Old Testament. We're just getting ready to do the New Testament. So that's a Thursday night class. It's kind of a, like a Bible college level uh, intro class uh, for, for, um, for lay people. Um, so that's the kind of thing I do. I did my PhD under John Webster when he was at the University of Toronto, although he moved to Oxford while I was writing my thesis, but he kept me on and to the end. And uh, I did my thesis on John Howard Yoder. So I suppose it's just something to know that I've moved from being a Bartian Anabaptist to a kind of Baptist to a Reformed, being a Reformed kind of Baptist over the last uh, 15 years. And um, I, I have... Uh, undergone that journey as a result of, uh, of um, basically reading and being converted to, uh, to a classical theist and uh, historic Christian orthodoxy kind of uh, point of view. And um, 
this is a result of writing a book that I've been writing for a long time, which I just sent off the last final revision on Saturday to the publisher, and it'll be out next year, early next year, on uh, the doctrine of God. The um, during during the writing of that book, I have been uh, working through the whole issue of what it means to uh, to accept the Nicene Orthodox doctrine of God, and uh, so all the other issues flow out of that. That's awesome, um, and I know. I think the vast majority of our listeners especially are very excited about that book that's going to be coming out. So I'm looking forward to getting myself my own copy and reading it. Um, I don't know if you listened to our initial podcast episode on your stuff, which it's funny because it came out right when you got on Twitter. Um, but me and Brandon, actually, when we first met and became friends, that was the first book that we went through together. Uh, so we spent, I don't know, it's probably three or four months uh, reading through it chapter by chapter and talking through it. So we had a great time doing it. Um, and so go ahead. Yeah, I guess, Brandon, you got something. I, yeah, I was just going to say we could we could kind of jump right into yeah. the, the topic of the book. Um, so for the listeners that aren't familiar with the book that we're talking about, this is Dr. Carter's book that came out in 2018 uh, called Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. And that is by Baker Academic. And the subtitle of that is Recovering the Genius of Pre-Modern Exegesis. So we'll use that kind of as a, a jumping off point for the rest of the conversation. But um, yeah, like like Jordan said, this was um, kind of the book that we got to know each other over discussing this book. So um, And it really was um, a, a time for me that really changed the way I thought about the way I looked at the Bible. So um, it's definitely a book that I look back to. Uh, fondly, but uh, why did you write the book, number one, and what what is the larger uh, hermeneutical goal that you're trying to uh, achieve with this book, uh, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition? Okay, so let me give you a little uh, quick uh, gist of uh, the preface of the new book, because the preface is called How I Changed My Mind. So the story goes like this. Uh, in, in 2003, 2004, I was basically a Bartian Anabaptist, and I had been reading Colin Gunton, John Zizioulis, Stanley Grenz, people like that, and uh, I had totally swallowed the idea that there's a fundamental divide between East and West on the doctrine of the Trinity, and that uh, the West is really just monotheistic, uh, following in the train of Augustine, but that the real Trinitarians were the Cappadocian fathers, and that the Eastern idea of the Trinity is that you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, relating to each other in love as three, kind of like three individuals loving one another, and that that love is the bond that holds them together, makes them one God. And that this, uh, so I, I wanted, I had written a, a book on John Howard Yoder and another book uh, on social ethics, and now I wanted to write a doctrine of God that would be a relational concept of God undergirding a relational pacifist social ethic. That was where I started. And I made the mistake of reading the primary sources. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis says that uh, a young atheist cannot be too careful about his reading. Well, a young revisionist cannot be too careful about his reading. So if you, if you just want to write a book and confirm your preconceptions, do not read the fathers. And uh, what, what might be even worse, do not read the really good patristic scholars. I've come to have a high respect for patristics as a discipline. So I'm reading Francis Young, John Baer, Kelly Danatolios, Louis Ayers, people like this. And I come to realize that the whole 
Zizioulis story of being in communion is wrong, that, the, uh, that there is no divide between East and West. There is just pro-Nicene theology of the fourth and fifth century, and that Augustine is not a mere monotheist, and so on and so on and so on. Well, my whole world was turned upside down, or maybe right side up is a better way to put it. And um, I realized that the that the uh, the classical the I, I came to realize that essentially what the Nicene doctrine of God is, it is the it's classical theism united with a trinitarian account of God. The fathers use two words. They use theologia and economia. So the economy is history. It's God revealing Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in history. The um, the theologia is really God in Himself. God the eternal trinity versus the economic trinity, this, this distinction. And so they don't, they, they, they find this distinction crucially important because it allows them to say things about God clearly that they couldn't otherwise say. It's not that there are two trinities. It's not that the, the economic trinity is somehow contradictory in some way to the, uh, to the imminent trinity or eternal trinity. It's just that when we are talking about the eternal trinity, we need to say certain things that it's hard to say the, when we're talking about the economic trinity. God reveals himself in history, but when he reveals himself in history through his mighty acts in history as interpreted by the prophets and apostles, not everything that is true about God eternally in his own being is fully revealed by his revelation in history. What is revealed is true as far as it goes, but it's limited by our capacity to understand. We can only understand certain things up to a point about God. And he reveals those things to us as we meditate and contemplate his actions in history as uh, in, in the light of scripture. We can understand God uh, up to a point. We can even understand things that are true about his being, his eternal being. But that doesn't mean that our knowledge is comprehensive. And so there, there's, a, there's an element of mystery there. And, and the mystery is that which is beyond our comprehension, but nevertheless true. And that which we know is consistent with what is beyond our knowledge, but it's not exhaustive of God. Um, now, as I began to reorient my whole theology around this, uh, the, the, I, I realized that, um, that it was not that difficult to take the 20th century revival of Trinitarian theology and say, you know, a lot of this is not Nicene. Uh, if you want a good book that does that, uh, Stephen Holmes' book, uh, Quest for the Trinity, IBP Academic, uh, lays things out very clearly. And it shows you that, um, that the revival of Trinitarian theology in the 20th century um, is not Nicene. And so, so what this means, what that was what really that that idea that that the that the that modern trinitarian theology the modern contemporary 21st century doctrine of god is not in harmony with the creed i i felt like i could i could explain that and i could say that i convince people of that quite easily but then you have to but then i knew what they would say is yes but the nicene fathers didn't interpret the bible as they didn't interpret the bible as well as we do we interpret the Bible in the modern age better than they did. Uh, they were into allegory. They read things in, and they made the, they committed the cardinal sin of reading the reading dogma into the Bible. And we know we know better than that. So, I realized at that point that I had to address the hermeneutical question, and um, that's what set me off in writing the interpreting scripture book. I realized that that I had to write 
I, it, it got it got out of hand. It just became too big, and I had to write that book first in order to get on with what I was originally starting out to do, which was to talk about the doctrine of God. So um, this this book really presupposes the uh, interpreting scripture book, and 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 because what I had to do was work out in my mind in what specific way is pre-modern exegesis superior to modern exegesis? Where are the fault lines? Where, where, does, where does modernity go off the track? And, and what is wrong with modern exegesis anyway? Uh, you can't say, well, modern exegesis is historical. And, you know, because, I mean, you know, Christianity is historical. Um, the incarnation happened in history. That's the whole point. So it's not that we want, it's not, what's wrong with modern exegesis can't be that it takes history seriously. So if it's not that, then what is it? So this is the, this is the question that I had to, to really wrestle with. And that's why I wrote Interpreting Scripture. And I think that what I, what I tried to say there was that the Bible is, um, in, and it, we have to treat it as an inspired word of God. And that, so inspiration for, for us um, generally means the Bible is inspired, so therefore it's authoritatively true. But I, I argued that um, inspiration ought to affect the way we interpret the Bible. The fact that the Bible is inspired means that it's a unity. Uh, 40 authors, 1,500 uh, years, uh, 60 books, and yet it's a unity. There, there's a divine author who, uh, who is behind the whole thing. And it has a unified testimony to Jesus Christ, uh, one theme. And, uh, and, and, and so there's a, and so then that led to wrestling with the literal sense versus the spiritual sense. The church has always said there's something beyond the literal sense, but the church does not want to say that what is beyond the literal sense is, is against the literal sense or, or is contradictory to the literal sense. Inspiration means that the human author is inspired and what the human author consciously intends to say is true. But there's more meaning in the text than just that. And that more meaning is the divine authorial intent working through the human authorial intent. And so as the history of hermeneutics went on, um, the consensus began to develop that we should call this spiritual sense something like the expanded literal sense or the extended literal sense. And, and, and that is to ensure that it doesn't contradict the, the human authorial intention, but, but can go beyond it. So um, in that sense, I, I realized that has a tremendous implication for, um, for uh, the way we do theology. So my understanding of theology is that theology is exegesis plus doctrine. So what I mean by that is we, we take the scripture and we, we do our exegesis. The exegesis then, the exegetical results that we get, we, we arrange them and we, after we do a lot of it, we, 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 we see certain themes coalescing into doctrines. So like the doctrine of creation. And then what we can do is we can deduce from those doctrines certain other doctrines, uh, particularly metaphysical ones. And so we can, for example, deduce the doctrine of creation out of nothing from the doctrine of creation. Mm -hmm. Well, at that point, um, we're not finished. At that point, we, uh, we need to go back to Scripture with our doctrines and 
do our exegesis all over again and contemplate the exegetical results in the light of the overall system that we have been, that we have been doing. Now, this is what I would actually argue is the meaning of reading dogma into the Bible. So I actually, I actually, in my book, I talk about J.P. Gabler's address in 1787, where he, he's considered the founder of biblical theology. And he gives this address in which he, um, he defines biblical theology as over against dogmatic theology. He, he drives a wedge between these two. Mm -hmm. And he says, biblical theology is where you study, historically study the Bible to see what the original author meant. And he systematically rules out divine authorial intent, just talks about human authorial intent only. Dogmatic theology is something else. It's For him, it's something that it's kind of like relating theology to the current situation in society. That, that's what he means by it. And so I think that, it, it, so the, but the dictum that arises out of that address, which becomes widespread and almost unquestioned in modernity, is that you do not read doctrine into the Bible. Never, ever do that. Well, I think you have to do that. Um, not in the not in the obvious sense that you know what the text means before it before you read it and so you 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 just twist it to mean what you want it to mean. No, we don't do that. So you have this first exegesis where you get the exegetical results and you and you consider that in the history of theology. But then what I'm calling the second exegesis, where you contemplate the exegetical results you got the first time in the light of the doctrines that have coalesced as a result of reading and exegeting many texts, and you put that all together, and it's in that second exegesis, as you contemplate the text, that the deeper meaning of the text comes, becomes clear. Because you begin to see the divine authorial intent that is coming from the whole of the canon, uh, as it applies to and as it relates to each individual text that you're reading. So there is the sense in which exegesis is the daughter of doctrine. There, there's, a, there's a kind of a spiral effect whereby you, you get exegetical results, you formulate doctrines, you use those doctrines to then read the, read the scripture for deeper meaning, and that process continues. So what I have tried to do is to show that uh, that way of reading the Bible and that way of doing theology is the way that the fathers, that's how they got to the Nicene Creed. Mm -hmm. And so the, the burden of the book is to try to say, you know, the, 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 the reading of the Bible that, that, that traditional orthodoxy has given us, um, that that reading of the Bible is A, justified, and B, it is in harmony with the doctrinal or creedal tradition of the church uh, as, we, as we have it in, in Trinitarian classical theism. So, so that's what I'm trying to do in the book. So that's why the two books are uh, kind of necessary for each other. Yeah, I guess, and that makes sense. Brandon and I definitely agree uh, with the burden of the book and with how, um, I guess, doctrine and exegesis, uh, they interplay. Um, I think you, you mentioned in there somewhere, like if, if basically if we try to get rid of our presuppositions, all we're doing is ignoring them and hiding them and then becoming um, ignorant of them. Uh, because everybody has them. Uh, I think the, the key question that a lot of people have um, is primarily the usage of the Christian Platonist uh, label in, in the book for this Nicene metaphysics. So I think we all, at least all three of us here agree, Nicene metaphysics is the way to go. 
Um, the question, though, that I, I guess fundamentally have is, what is Christian Platonism, and is that a proper term uh, to use? But before I get there, um, for someone who may not know much about metaphysics, um, why is it that we need to understand metaphysics? So if I had a lay church member come to me and ask, why does this even matter? Why, why is there a discussion about Christian Platonism or Nicene metaphysics? What's the importance of that? Before then, we ask, "What is Christian Platonism, and is it a valid uh, is it a valid term?" Well, I would, if I was to answer that question from a, a layperson, I would use the term worldview. And uh, even though, you know, as a scholar, I have some some reservations about the term worldview, and we can go into that sometime. But I think J.V. Fesco's recent book, uh, Reforming Apologetics, he has an excellent chapter there on worldview. So it's a complicated subject, but I would still use the word. I would say, look, when you read the Bible, you're going to have a worldview. Now, as you, and the worldview, I would, as I would explain it to an ordinary person is, is things that you don't think that you have to argue for or defend, but just assume. Mm -hmm. And you're sometimes not even conscious of assuming them. And you assume these things to be right because you've picked them up informally and you've never met anybody who's challenged them. And so you just take them for granted. But you might be reading the Bible and your, your, your worldview that you're assuming may not be the worldview of the author of Scripture. In fact, you may, be, you may have the opposite belief on a certain topic that, to the author of Scripture, and you may assimilate the author of Scripture's view to your view and you don't even realize what you're doing. Um, so for example, here's, my, here's the example I give in the book. So, you, so if, you, um, if you say, I tell my students, I say, you know, God, I, we should not say God is a person. We should say God is personal, but we should not say God is a person. Jesus Christ is a person, but he's a unique person. Um, the danger of saying God is a person is that you may, you, you may say, God is a person. Now I know a lot of things about God because I know everything is true about God that is true about persons. And if you, if you do that, you'll soon be in trouble uh, because there are a lot of things that are true of human persons that are not true of God. And so, see, you the, the issue is your worldview defines certain things that may or may not be uh, the, the, what the Bible is trying to say. And so you may distort the Bible and misunderstand the Bible without meaning to, because your worldview is leading you astray. So you need to examine your worldview, and you need to uh, make sure that, that the worldview you hold, or as we say, the metaphysics that you hold, is with, with what Scripture is assuming. Okay. So then when it comes to Christian Platonism, why don't, why don't you give us a brief definition of it so that we can kind of, I guess, work through um, the specifics on it? Okay, well, I don't have any great stake in, in uh, upholding the label for the sake of the label. The, the term Christian Platonism, um, I guess I spent too much time reading patristics because it's not controversial among patristic scholars. It's just a, a descriptive term that they happen to use. And, and um, uh, basically, Platonism by the time of Augustine, is a seven, six or seven hundred year tradi old tradition. Platonism is the mainstream of Greek philosophy at that time. There are other streams, but basically there's, there's Stoicism, there's Epicureanism, 
there's uh, there, there's a few other things, but Platonism is the the biggie. Platonism is the main thing. Platonism is is a tradition that that starts with Socrates and Plato, and is it continues with Aristotle, the the Middle Platonists, the academics, the skeptics, and then the Neoplatonists. So Plotinus dies in 270, and by the time of Augustine, he's a he's the leading um, uh, Platonist. And uh, uh, Platonism is sort of like, you know, to try to imagine yourself into late Greco-Roman antiquity. Um, Platonism would occupy something similar in the intellectual landscape to modern science would today. Uh, to, 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 to just ignore modern science uh, would be pretty difficult. In, in, and, and to just say, I, I, just, I, I reject modern science would be kind of a crazy thing to do in, in our context. Uh, and yet to, uh, to say that um, uh, everything that modern science says is absolutely true and I accept every, every jot and tittle would also seem like kind of a crazy thing to do. So, so that's Platonism in the modern world. You, you, you don't just reject it, you don't just accept it, you work within the context of it and, and you, uh, you, you know, the alternative would be to, uh, to take on some kind of a, you know, to, to become a, a Stoic and, and to embrace pantheism, which they weren't about to do. Or, you know, the Epicureans, or uh, they're basically like, um, like deists uh, of, the, of the ancient world, um, or maybe even atheists. Um, so, so Lloyd Gerson, who's a, a leading scholar of Greek philosophy, has written several books on Platonism. Um, he says that, uh, that what you need to do is to define Platonism in the broadest possible sense, to understand it as a intellectual movement. And he says that, um, that if you wanted to define it in the, in the, you know, sort of in one sentence, it is anti-naturalism. Okay, so there's naturalism and then there's Platonism. Okay, well, can we go any further? And he suggests a, a heuristic device consisting of five denials. And any philosopher who denies these five things fits within the, 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 um, the big Platonist tent in one way or another. They may disagree on many other things, but if they deny these five things, then they fit within the Platonist tradition somewhere. In the same sense that, remember, Aristotle and Plato both fit within this Platonist tradition. And Augustine and Aquinas both fit somewhere within this, and Anselm all fit within this, this Platonist tradition. So, um, so what are the five things? Well, if you deny uh, nominalism, materialism, mechanism, relativism, and skepticism, then you are, then that is what he calls Ur-Platonism. So anti-materialism, anti-mechanism, uh, uh, anti-nominalism, anti-relativism, and anti-skepticism. If you deny those five things, then you are within the overarching boundary of Ur-Platonism. So that means that uh, both Augustine and Plotinus would fit within Ur-Platonism somewhere. Mm -hmm. But um, what happens in the fifth century is that because of the, the modifications uh, that Christians make to Platonism, and especially in light of the uh, the gospel and the incarnation of Christ and and the whole plan of redemption and the the whole idea of salvation from sin and sanctification and transformation and the hope of bodily resurrection, 
there evolves a new whole new kind of Platonism that is called Christian Platonism. And that's, that's Augustine. And Augustine basically, at that time, the best of paganism was Neoplatonism, and the best of Christianity was Christian Platonism. And Christian Platonism overcomes Neoplatonism, and the result is the Christian Middle Ages. And, and, then, and then that becomes the, the, the metaphysical dominant tradition. Now, Neoplatonism doesn't completely disappear. It goes underground for, about, for several centuries. It reemerges at the Renaissance. Um, it also becomes uh, very big again in the 19th and 20th centuries. So it's not like Plat Neoplatonism completely dies. But insofar as there is something called Christendom, insofar as there is something called a Christian West, um, the Christian Platonist uh, tradition becomes dominant within that cultural construct. Now, we don't have to call, so, so I refer to Christian Platonism as the metaphysics of, uh, that goes with Nicene Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a replacement for Nicene Christianity. Um, it's just, the, it's just a, a handy way of talking about certain metaphysical things that we believe um, that have to go along with our confession of the Trinity in order to formulate a, a, a Christian doctrine of God. Now, if you want to call it Nicene metaphysics, if you want to call it great tradition metaphysics, if you want to call it um, the, uh, the, the metaphysical implications of Christian orthodoxy, uh, I mean, it's fine. It, I haven't really found another label that, that isn't clunky or uh, equally susceptible to being misunderstood. But if we find one, I, I gladly embrace it. Yeah, I guess, I mean, that, I mean, that really is the crux of the issue is, is, is it useful? And I guess I just have concerns about the label primarily because I guess if you look in the modern understanding of what Platonism means, it's, it's a theory about abstract objects um, and not necessarily just these five um, tenets of Platonism that Gerson has. And then I, I do have one, I guess, I don't know how useful the five tenets are because it seems so broad um, that almost anybody can suddenly become a Platonist um, to some degree or another. Anti-naturalism seems to be the idea that's getting across, but I, I don't know if that's sufficient. It may, it's necessary for Platonism, those five things, but I don't know if it's sufficient to really give a, a proper label. So I guess I'm almost partial to calling it just Nicene metaphysics myself. Um, or, or well, something. I can understand that. I can understand that. But one other reason why it is um, useful is because in the Enlightenment, I, I see, I'm astonished to see that the Enlightenment goes back and resurrects those very uh, philosophical ideas that the Church Fathers uh, wrestled with and, and consciously rejected. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you see a revival of atomism. And you see a revival of Epicureanism, and you see a revival of, of atheism and naturalism, and and all those things. It's like it's like the the things that both Christians and Platonists were fighting back in the third and fourth, fifth centuries, suddenly make this big comeback in the Enlightenment. And I, I think that the um, I, I think the Christian Platonism is a way of, uh, of, uh, of basically opposing the Enlightenment, of basically saying the Enlightenment is not progress, it's regress. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and we, need to, we need to... Another reason why I find it uh, useful is because so much of modern theology is being done today within the constraints of the uh, metaphysical 
um, rules of the game imposed by human can't. And so almost all, name any major movement in theology in the 19th and 20th century from Hegel onwards, and it seems as though they are not challenging Kant. Now, Kant is, is somebody who I would regard as the anti-Platonist. Um, Kant denies knowledge of things in themselves. He really denies that, that, that we can have knowledge of a thing's essence. For, for a Platonist, the way we get knowledge is we understand the definition of what a thing is. Once you know what its essence is, you know what universal it participates in, then you have knowledge of that thing. And Kant says you can't do that. And that has tremendous implications for our knowledge of God. So it's no accident that God, that Kant denies the, the metaphysical proofs for the existence of God. So there's no cosmological proof and so on. Um, but after Kant, kind of theology is some kind of post-Kantian constructivism whether we're talking about post-liberalism, whether we're talking about BART, uh, everything is, is, is saying, well, you know, we, we can't talk the way that Christians used to talk about the relationship of God to the world. We can't really talk about providence in the same way. We can't really talk about miracle in the same way. We can't really talk about uh, creation in the same way. And I just find that, um, th that we need some way of signaling that Something very fundamental changed at, at around the end of the Enlightenment period, the beginning of the 19th century, as far as modern, and modern theology has got to find some way of breaking out of this set of metaphysical handcuffs that modernity has got us in. And I've mm. come to the conclusion that the pre-modern so, stuff is actually superior to this, so, so that's what we need to do. We need to find a way to reclaim it. So on that topic, yeah, this was something that when uh, Jordan and I were reading through your book, um, and this isn't one of the things that we were specifically planning on talking about, but it just popped into my mind again. But I kept thinking when we were reading that, and I don't know how familiar you are with dispensational theology, but that's um, what, what I was raised in. And it seemed to me when I was reading the book, I was like, dispensational theology is it seems to be a slave to the enlightenment way of approaching scripture, even though I don't think dispensationalist theologians are thinking that that's the case about how they approach scripture. But when, you know, you're, you're talking about the, um, the full literal sense of, of the, of the meaning of scripture, you know, the, the, the divine author's intent, you know, um, the, the way we just approach the old Testament in light of the new Testament and all those different things, it seems to me that that, and I don't know if you've you've had any dispensationalist uh, theologians respond to your book, but I think they would have a hard time agreeing with a lot of what you say in the book, even though they want to come to a lot of the same conclusions that you come to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Why do you why do you think that? Um, uh, what specifically about dispensationalism do you think is uh, is 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 kind of failing to break loose from modern metaphysics. So the specific example that comes to mind is when we interpret the Old Testament, I'm, I'm constantly told by dispensationalists that we should interpret it strictly as someone in that Old Testament time period would have interpreted it. So it's a time-bound uh, way of, of interpreting the Bible, and they're, they're see, it seems to lose that transcendent um, divine authorial intent that you want us to to be able to recover uh, in the way that you are, are 
advocating that we should approach the Bible. Does that make sense? Well, yes, in the sense that, um, that uh, yeah, the, before the Enlightenment, the Church never wanted to reduce the meaning of Scripture to the conscious human authorial intent alone. Uh, so in that sense, it is modern. Yes, absolutely. Um, see, the, the problem is that uh, this, is, this is a very subtle issue, and we, we have to be careful not to, not to go off half-cocked. This is really... There is a true sense, so, and I'm sorry if I sound like Thomas Aquinas here making these distinctions, but it's this complicated that we can't help it. There is a true sense in which the meaning of the Old Testament text is what Moses or David or Isaiah meant right. it to be. And there is a true sense in which it is dangerous to become unmoored from that. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and there is a true sense also in which it is not not a good idea to collapse the meaning of each part of the Bible at each stage of Revelation uh, in such a way that they all end up meaning exactly the same thing. That's not really what we're after here. Um, we're, we're not trying to make Isaiah sound exactly like Paul and say everything that Paul says. Um, mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is to, is to study the scriptures in such a way that we see that that when you understand what Isaiah meant by something, that that is not contradictory to what Paul is saying, and that Paul can be read as an expansion of that, as a sort of an illumination of that, as just kind of a taking that and going a little further with it, um, and that the, you want to see the harmony, you want to see the fit, because I think that the, the central apostolic message was that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and fulfillment, you have to have two things that are complementary. Okay, so maybe this is on my mind because our pastor is preaching on Genesis 2, and he's talking about how the male and the female are not identical. They're, they're not appropriate for each other because they're identical to each other. They're appropriate to each other because they're complementary to each other, because one lacks what the other has, one has what the other lacks. They're like the, the two identical jigsaw piece, puzzle pieces don't fit together, but two that are different but yet complementary. If they're too different, they don't fit. But if they're complementary in exactly the right way, they fit together. This is how we think of the Testaments. They fit together in a, in a perfect way, so that what is lacking in one is supplied by the other. And when you put them together, you see a wholeness there. You see a whole truth, uh, not, not two, two kinds of truth fighting with each other, but you see the one whole truth revealed completely. And and that's what we're that's what we're after. So we're after this, and I've said it before. This is the this is the 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 reasonable middle ground between uh, um, between a, a single meaning theory only on the one side, and a reader modern postmodern reader response theory on the other, where we read our own meaning into the text, and so the text becomes uh, beholden to us. Uh, that's one extreme, and where we just see the the human authorial intent only, that's the other extreme. In the middle, we see a human authorial intent that is providentially enshrined within the canon of Scripture in such a way that it becomes the prophecy to which the New Testament becomes the fulfillment so that the two come together to make one complete complementary whole. So yeah, that but, but the, that that in itself is very anti-modern because there's no way that that can happen except by a miracle. There's got to be a single author orchestrating that in order for that to work. 
there's got to be the same Holy Spirit working in the heart of Moses, David, and Paul, and Matthew in order for that mm -hmm. all come together in the right way. There's no human way. There's no naturalistic explanation for that. There's no way that you could explain that as just a, uh, a happenstance or, or something. It's, it's got a, the, the kind of uh, wholeness of, uh, because there's one more element to that, and that is that the, the whole truth, when, it's, when you see the two Testaments interlocking together to make a complementary whole, there is also a sense in which the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You know, it's, it's just like marriage, that in a marriage that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And, um, and, and that is beautifully expressed in, in, in the way that uh, uh, human procreation results in the growth of a family. And so two people come together, but then a family ensues. And when the truth of God is seen, um, that's, that's the miracle of inspiration that, that when, when we see the Old and New Testament fitting together in this way, what, what we, we be, as we contemplate that, we come to deeper and deeper understandings of God and all things in relation to God. And that, that's what I think is, the, um, is so beautiful and so important about this way of reading Scripture. And for the church to lose that is an is a absolute disaster. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think I was kind of a slave to modern interpretation myself until uh, my seminary time when I took a course with Jonathan Pennington on uh, the Gospel of Matthew and had to read through his Reading the Gospels Wisely. And uh, I, I think everybody in the classroom kind of wanted to reject uh, how he was approaching Scripture. Um, but it was really kind of a gateway for me to understand there's a whole lot more depth there uh, than I realized. So I, I want to, I want to do one thing, uh, before we, I guess, um, kind of close up shop. Uh, I do want to give you the floor. If there's anything else you want to want to talk about, or if you want to defend when it, when it comes to the label of Christian Platonism or anything, I want to give you the chance to do that. Um, but I do want to be cognizant of our listeners who generally expect somewhere about 35 to 40 minutes from us. Uh, but I know that this, con this content and this episode was a, a different nature. So we wanted to give more time to it. Uh, so is there anything else you wanted to, to mention? Um, well, I, I guess I would just say that the um, that that a a truly Christian theology needs to somewhere somehow touch down in in empirical reality and have implications. And uh, um, one of the one of the things that I find most frustrating about uh, critiques of Christian Platonism is the uh, assumption that it. Um, is sort of equated with Gnosticism. Uh, N.T. Wright does this all the time. Yeah. He basically talks about Christian. He talks about Christian Platonism as if it were Gnosticism. Uh, for example, uh, that it's that it hates the body, or that it 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 is seeking to um, to uh, direct our attention away from uh, the physical world into uh, kind of an ethereal, immaterial, spiritual realm that has no connection to the creation. Um, I, I think that, that that is a misunderstanding uh, of Christian Platonism. I, don't, I think there's a great deal of difference between Platonism, and no matter how you define it, even if, if you want to define it as the thought of Plato himself, or if you want to define it as the tradition, or um, even if you want to talk about the theory of forms and participation and universals and all that, 
but whatever definition, it's a long way from Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a corruption of that. It's a very, it's a degenerative uh, view of that. And, and, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's very different. And then when you consider that Christian Platonists have consistently from the beginning affirmed the resurrection of the body as the end goal of God's redemptive work, um, there's just no excuse for uh, conflating Gnosticism and Platonism. Uh, and so I think that's, uh, that's a very important uh, uh, point that I want to make and, and uh, leave with your listeners. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that's just sloppy thinking to equate the two things. Um, mm -hmm. I guess the, the question, I mean, it really depends on how you define Platonism when it comes to that. Um, and I think even no matter how you define it, the question is not uh, if it generates the body, but if it's, a, I guess, if it's a sufficient uh, amount of I guess, metaphysical weight to explain why we get the resurrected body, resurrected body. But I think that in itself is a completely different question than saying it's uh, something that we want to get rid of and get out of and hide from. Yeah. And I think that Christians have always talked about um, dying and going to heaven. And, and, uh, and uh, I, I just don't see the problem with that. I want to die and go to heaven. Um, and, and, uh, but I also want to I also want to bring come back to earth, bringing heaven with me, and that's what mm -hmm. the vision at the end of Revelation is about. You know, uh, uh, Paul says uh, Paul tells the Thessalonians that the that when Christ returns, he's going to bring those who have died in Christ with him, and um, so you know, going to heaven doesn't preclude coming back, mm -hmm. and and it doesn't preclude the transformation of this earth into the new heavens and the new earth and and the ideal creation. So. Um, uh, yeah, I just think that uh, that Christian Platonism should not be understood as world-denying or body-hating or uh, as a strictly spiritual kind of salvation, um, but it does take seriously the need for the transformation of this world by means that are beyond human capacity. So in the, as uh, Eric Foglin famously said, uh, do not immanentize the eschaton, and that's what I'm afraid that people who are too anti-Platonist very often are, are guilty of the opposite error, which is to basically envision salvation and redemption as something that happens only within this imminent frame that we experience. It's just a, it's kind of like this world getting better and better until it becomes perfect. And that, that with, without a divine intervention in the form of the second coming of Christ, that is, that is almost beyond our capacity to imagine. Um, so I think that, that, uh, um, that that we shouldn't let we shouldn't let talk of Platonism or uh, Platonist metaphysics um, uh, imply that that somehow we have uh, we do not believe in the ultimate transformation of the heavens and the earth as the and the resurrection of the body as the, uh, the the end goal of God's redemptive work. Yeah, as as much as I think M.T. Wright does some good stuff, there's some other ways that really kind of grind my gears when he says things I'm like i'm not sure if you're really an expert in that area you should probably tone down the rhetoric a little bit but uh. well he really does tend to it's funny you know he's an anglican former bishop and i'm just a, an unwashed baptist but uh, but i feel like i'm more catholic than he is because he He's kind of the he's kind of a biblicist, really. He yeah. he jumps from Second Temple Judaism to the 20th century, and it's like everything in between. Just don't bother me with those details; they're not important. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that the historical theology is uh, is very important, and the historic Nicene Orthodoxy, and I take the creeds I think very seriously, and 
and so on. So, I mean, I, I, I just find that part frustrating. So as much as I do appreciate uh, many things that he has to say, I think that the uh, back on Platonism is, is unfortunate because, um, because one of the things about Platonism that we should keep, keep in mind is that some of the most anti-Christian figures in, in modern history, like Nietzsche, have, uh, have hated Platonism almost as much as they've hated Christianity. And so it does have all the right enemies. So we, we should ask why that is. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's true. Um, and I, I want to thank you for the time you've spent with us talking about this. Um, I know you could have easily just ignored us, but you decided to reach out and offer your time to us. And we're very, very thankful. Um, I know both me and Brandon have appreciated your work and we look forward to getting a copy of your newest book, which we will obviously promote ourselves. Um, and we'll definitely point our listeners to your current ones that you have out. Uh, so that whenever they look at the podcast, they got show notes. So you can click on the link there for us for it and go straight to it and get yourself a copy if you haven't gotten it yourself. Um, but again, thank you for your time. Well, thank you. It's been a privilege and uh, I, it's been just an honor to talk to you. And anybody who reads my book gets, uh, gets my time. Absolutely. No problem. And I'll be sure that you get a free copy of the new book from Baker. And if I don't send it to you, remind me when it comes out and, and maybe we'll uh, have another chat about it. Well, I guess that makes the whole podcast thing worth it for me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, until the, until now, we haven't gotten anything from it. <laughs> Well, I'll have to make sure that they send you two books so you don't fight over it. <laughs> yeah, right. Jordan would, would have no chance. So. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks again, Dr. Carter. Uh, we really enjoyed your time. Um, and we know our listeners have benefited from it as well. Uh, and again, we, we hope this episode and episodes in the future continue to encourage you to think. That is the goal of our podcast. We want to be thinking people. Uh, so whether the topic is how we interpret scripture, uh, what, what we draw, derive from it or anything, we want to be thinking and thinking clearly and, and uh, in a kind and gracious way as well. So uh, we thank you for listening in to the London Lyceum, and we can't wait for you to hear the next upcoming episodes as well. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.